Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast. My name is John Reynolds, the host of the podcast, which features interviews with luminaries from the world of media and marketing. And today we have another humdinger of a guest. I am delighted to be joined by Karen O'Connor, the Chief Executive of Dennis Publishing owned The Week magazine. Thanks a million for joining me today, uh, Karen. For the listeners, can you just tell them where we are carrying out this podcast and also a potted history of your career today and also a potted history of The Week? Absolutely. Uh, hello, John, and welcome, welcome to Dennis Publishing. We're sitting in one of our, our little uh, uh, cabins at uh, uh, Dennis Publishing, and, and we have these because we came out having offices uh, okay. about six months ago. And so we are in our new offices in Bloomsbury, just near the British Museum. Uh, but we have about 300 staff where we work in an open working environment. So we've just come through the den where you can go and have a cup of tea and we're yeah. sitting in one of these pods having a meeting. Okay, so how long have you been with Dennis now? Have you... uh, I've been at this my 22nd year at Dennis. So I feel like kind of a bit like one of the Rolling Stones. It's just sort of, you know, we just we just keep on going. And uh, I joined the week about two months before I got bought by Felix. Mm-hmm. Okay, many moons ago. Many, many moons ago. And the week was selling about 2,000 copies back then. Okay. Being published at the news in Paddington. Okay, so we can go on to talk about the week later. So uh, I'm going to, first of all, I had a, a guest on last week from the advertising uh, industry, and because the subject this year was um, sexual harassment in, you know, in the broader sense, I asked him about sexual harassment in the advertising industry. So I'm going to ask you the same questions about um, publishing. Obviously, the story began in the US with Harvey Weinstein. It's now engulfing Westminster, and the uh, BBC has said it's investigating 25 cases of alleged sexual harassment post-Weinstein. So uh, do you think there's a problem in the publishing industry? Do you expect stories to come out of the publishing industry? And have you had any experience, either first or second hand, of sexual harassment or other type of harassment in the, uh, in the workplace? I think, it, I think in this particular instance, one of the, uh, it's difficult for me to speak to the publishing industry yeah. because what we're seeing is we're seeing these stories break all over the place, right? So sure. I, I can't say whether or not this is uh, more instance there. I can speak a little bit of Dennis Publishing. I can say yep. I don't think that this has ever been an issue at Dennis. So yep. I think over my 22 years, I can't think of a, uh, an instance where this has popped up. Um, I think there's a really actual wonderful openness, really, about what's coming forward now, that people mm. are feeling emboldened to come forward and talk about these issues. Because I feel the more that these things are addressed and open, the more likely we are to have an open working practice. And that encourages mm. diversity and it makes things uh, an easier place for people to fulfil their ambitions. Okay. I mean, you said you can't talk specifically about the publishing industry. Do you think, I guess there's one argument that it could well, be... I can't a, talk generally about yeah, the publishing industry. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, I think that... You know, that's the sort of question you'd be better off putting to Barry McBurney okay. the PPA. But yeah. certainly in publishing, it's never really felt like that kind of industry in terms okay. of, of, being, of being within sexual harassment really being an issue. Okay. So you don't think, I guess, there's one argument that it's a sort of a generational thing. So for the older generation, what to them, for want of a better phrase, may seem having a bit of banter or having a laugh to the younger generation is something altogether more sinister. Do you, do you get the impression that the younger generation are... are, are have different values today, or no? I don't. I think I think there's a tendency for every generation to see the previous generation as being uh, the, the next generation is okay. not working as hard as them, not being as tough, and all okay. that sort of stuff. Actually, I think I think this lot are just as tough. They're just as focused. You yeah. know, they're just as, as ambitious about it. I think that, I think they're slightly, they're more caring, yeah. and I think that's probably the big shift that I'd that I'd say. Okay. I think there's a sort of a slight lack of cynicism, and I think the lack of cynicism is, is sometimes mistaken for weakness. Okay. Uh, which I think is a sort of unfair observation. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I really, really like this generation that's coming through. They're very positive, can-do sort of people. And I think the sort of the snowflake thing feels to me like a kind of unfair okay. sort of general term. And, and, and again, you know, there are lots of people, people are people, they don't sort of 
know, you, you, you know, the year that you're born, it doesn't make you who you are. Yeah, okay, you know? good answer. Okay, so jumping on to um, gender and um, ethnic diversity in publishing. Uh, as you say, you've been in publishing um, for around 20 years, holding several senior jobs. Presumably you've seen lots of changes over that period. First of all, looking at women, um, do you think today it's easier for women to get um, top jobs in publishing? I was racking my brains. I think yeah, Hearst had um, Anna Jones as, as boss. She's no longer there. If you look in the US, Tina Brown has been editor of The New Yorker. Joanna Coles was a, I think she's a British journalist. She was at The Times and she's, mm. she's at Hearst now. So do you think you have seen a, a significant change over the past few years and more women are getting to the top? Well, I think you, you, you should, you know, you've got Zilla within that pack, of course, yeah, as, yeah. As, as the senior female chief executive within there who's done a, a super, super job at Future to turn around a business. So I think yeah. if you were looking for inspirational leaders who've actually achieved things, she's done uh, a lot within there. I think it's a shame that there's not more senior women right at the top of these companies. I think it's a, a pity. I think you, you can really feel it when you looked at the... Um, the chief execs at the PPA committee uh, sitting there last year, they were all blokes. <laughs> and that, that can't be right, John. No, you know? sure. and, and so I think what happens now with the rest of this, uh, the culture that we have is we've got to try to enable it to make it easier for uh, senior women to reach up into these chief executive jobs. So, for example, at Dennis, we're an ethical company, so we, you know, we're owned by a charity, so we have to focus a lot on our working practices. Alison Hunter is in charge of our human resources as a super job to make sure that we can try and provide platforms for both genders and uh, other and ethnicities mm. to fulfil their working ambitions here. And you know, we have some senior women in jobs here as well, okay. such as Abby Spooner, who I've been working with for 10 years, who is the genius behind the circulation rise of um, uh, the week. <laughs> okay. And um, she's she was recently made our chief customer officer, which is a new role that we had here to reflect the importance of... Uh, customers and if you look at something like Dennis about a third of our turnover is made from subscriptions and about another third of it is made from e-commerce so direct customer relationships form about okay. two-thirds of our business. Okay so you sort of broadened it out we talked about women and ethnic diversity you <coughs> mentioned the PPA do you think the same problem is in magazine boardrooms you're not seeing a broad spread of, of backgrounds you're not seeing Asian black people I mean obviously there was the high profile appointment of Edward and in full uh, editor-in-chief editor-in-chief of Vogue who was obviously black, working class background. Do you think we'll see more of that, you know, different ethnicities making up um, top jobs in um, editorial jobs? Yeah, I, I think Edward's a really interesting appointment. I don't know the guy, but I just saw his cover today and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I don't know if I've you've not seen, seen that. Mm. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant cover. It's a reflection of the, the heritage of Vogue, but it's also a, a okay. reflection of his influences and where he's going to go to. And, it's, and he styled it himself, and, you know, um, I think. A guy like him has the yeah. opportunity to be uh, uh, an inspiration for a generation. And you know, the media doesn't exist inside a vacuum. We have to be able to try and attract people who want to come and work for us because they think it's a good industry to work within. So mm. to have someone like him sure. working on one of the most, you know, whatever, it's certainly a top five magazine yeah. brand within the UK, I think is super. Okay, so change of tact here. Um, you're going to love this question. There's been a number of reports early this year that Dennis, obviously uh, the parent company here, is up for sale. Uh, I'm not close to the story myself, but I, I read the original report by Mark Kleinman, the Sky journalist, who said that the trustees of the Heart of England Forest charity, obviously the owner, as you mentioned, have undertaken a major review of the business, and there's been subsequent stories which said that Dennis was up for sale and could fetch, I think I'm right in saying, around 150 million with the week your baby being valued at 100 million. 
So, putting you on the spot, I'm sure you're going to give me a fulsome answer here, Karen. Can you tell me, did this review take place, and is Dennis up for sale? Well, I really like the idea that, <laughs> that my baby is worth 100 million quid. I think if only it was my baby, John, I would uh, um, the future of the rest of my life I might look a little bit easier like that. Do you know, I've, I've heard these rumours for years, and, okay. I, and I've had these rumours for years about the week, so I've had people uh, ringing me up saying, I have it on good authority that you are being sold to, you know, Condé Nast, The Times, The Telegraph, uh, Bauer, Delete, Delete, Delete. So a lot of this is people uh, putting things together and trying mm-hmm. to establish a pattern that doesn't exist. The truth of it is, is that we are owned by a charity. Mm. So we're owned by the Heart of England, which mm-hmm. was established by Felix to um, sure. provide funds for his forestry. And the trust will work out what they wish to do with their assets over a long-term view. Okay. So there isn't a kind of an immediate uh, process that's taking place, but uh, they will always be going through a review process. And right. they talk to us about how we're doing. At the moment, I'd say that the Trust couldn't be happy with us. I mean, why wouldn't they be? We're a market-leading, award-winning business that throws off a huge amount of cash. Mm. And some very burgeoning, interesting businesses like Biocar, which is our e-commerce business, which this year will turn over £30 million. Okay, so that was somewhere halfway between a denial and an acceptance that the review's taken place. I'll I'll leave the listeners to make up their own mind. But it was very carefully answered anyway. Okay, so uh, jump in, Chip. I've I've got a copy of uh, The Week in front of me. I've also got a copy of Money Week, which Dennis recently acquired, a high-profile acquisition. Um, This is obviously, like The the Week, it's... um, seen a number of uh, circulation growths in recent time. I think the circulation is just around 47,000 now and around 45,000 uh, subscriptions. Yep. You've obviously got high prof- Merrin Somerset Webb, who yep. is the editor, who's high profile because I've seen her on Question Time and other TV programmes. Um, so my questions are, is yeah, current affairs financial services, is that a growing uh, sector for Dennis Publishing? And also... Can you, as a chief exec of the week, can you talk a bit about the value of having a high-profile editor who um, is obviously well-known and appears on TV, and what does that add to the brand? And finally, the third part of this question, I guess, uh, uh, subscribers to the week also subscribers to Money Week? I'll start with the last one. So Money Week was actually um, launched by Dennis Publishing. So yeah. I, was, I was the launch publisher 17 years ago on Money Week, and I have... I wasn't very good at it, if I'm honest with you, and we didn't make a success of Money Week when it was here. And one of the things I didn't understand was I didn't understand money because I didn't have any money, and so I didn't understand what the motivations were of people with money. And I thought it would be about making money, and it's not. It's about wealth preservation. Okay. And so the genius of Money Week, as the journey it's been through, is an understanding is that people who have cash are motivated by a, a fear that they may be taken away. Yeah. So you have fear and greed working as very, very strong emotional... Uh, Pivot points yep. for your decisions that you make. Okay. Right. Yeah. So when you when you you know you you'll be familiar with this, which is that we we make uh, subconscious emotional decisions and then we post rationalise them as reasons to do things. Right? Yeah. Okay. So if you're a financial, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a self-made person, you've made it because you've made your own money. You don't have any wish to get rid of it. Mm. And so that kind of pragmatic expert really characterises Money Week. Okay. Right? So it's very different from the week. Yeah. So although you might look at them and go, oh, it's just an extension of the financial pages, it's not really. What Money Week does is it gives you a tone of view and a, and, and a series of opinions that allow you to uh, manage your own money. It's about it's about self enablement, mm-hmm. and Merrin really epitomises that character. Right? Okay. So there is a point of view about Money Week in the way that there isn't really a point of view inside the week. But the week mm-hmm. doesn't come out and say you know we're part of the liberal elite or you okay. know, we want to be for Brexit. But Money Week will very much say if you don't buy Japan, you're nuts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. Protect yourself by, yeah. by doing gold. And so the value that Money Week brings to its readers is really a point of view. 
Yeah. And that's why it's, and because the point of view is good, that's why yeah. it's the best selling financial magazine in Britain. Okay, so they, they, they would work uh, together as, as um, you know, as t- you know, people would buy a birth magazine then, basically. Yeah, they do. So the crossover isn't as great as you think. The crossover is only about 4,000 copies between both of them. Okay. And, and what about, you, you mentioned Merrin there, she's, she says she's on TV, so that, I mean, that adds value, doesn't it, if your editor's out there and people know her, does that, does that help with circulation, or how does that help, I guess? I, I, think, I think it's probably, I think it's, I'm not sure, I, I, don't, I think it probably does help circulation, but we, mm-hmm. we don't market Merrin, yeah. Yeah. it isn't a kind of picture of Merrin and saying, sure. you know, read me every week, but, okay. but what she does do is she, she symbolises that sort of independence of thought, Okay. so and I think, again, that's really important about that, that idea that, and she's on the side of the of, of the investor as opposed to the investment companies. You know, she speaks up for people who are trying to, to manage their money. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, another uh, question. Slight change of tact again. Uh, obviously, very sad news about the demise the pr- uh, demise of the print issue uh, print copies of uh, print issue of Glamour magazine earlier this year. Was that that to me? I'm not that close. That seemed to come out the blue. Um, what does that signify for the the, the women's you know monthly? Uh, sector will journalists, uh, you know, will the publishers at Cosm- Cosmopolitan be ruined now? Or it's not a sector that I know a great deal about. Okay. If I'm honest with you, John, in terms of doing that, so I think I can speak generally about what it, what yeah. it might mean. Uh, there had been rumours about Glamour probably about okay. a year a year before that. Okay. I think in terms of its future as a, as a print title, but I must say it came as a shock to me that they couldn't monetize a magazine that was still selling a couple of hundred thousand copies. Yeah, and so I think. You know, when we when we when we're here at Dennis, and yeah. you know, we think about brands and products that we own, we try and find appropriate business models, and we'll try and change the business model quite rapidly. And I, I'm surprised they didn't try and change the business model in terms of you know size or mm. or uh, you know, size sure. of the team, or maybe the editorial focus or something like that. So okay. I think you know, if you when you when you've got um, a big portfolio of magazines, you can't just apply one size fits all publishing models to them. So, for example, at Dennis, we have a franchising model. Do you know about this? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so we have a franchise model for about ten of our titles, and we um, yeah, we work with independent uh, editorial uh, suppliers to supply the content for our titles. Okay. Yeah. And, and so for titles like Forty and Times, which is probably the most stable title that is publishing, yeah, it works very well. The content is provided by an expert. We publish it. We do all the subscriptions work. We sell the advertising. It carries on making a profit. Yeah, okay. So I'm not saying that's the right no, thing for but Glamour, but yeah. I, I'm just saying that when in 2017, it's worth beginning to explore how these models might work. So there didn't seem to be a contingency plan then, really? <coughs> Do you know what? I'm just not close enough no, to know, okay. John, no, okay. so I wouldn't like to uh, speculate okay. to that. I think my thing is more rounded, which is that it's a pity to see something which is such a significant brand in print yeah. disappear, as well as the tragedy for all the people that yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you had your own experience. Obviously, we have Coach Magazine, which uh, you launched, which was a, a free title, interesting launch. Uh, uh, that launched, I think it was two years ago, and that didn't get. Tra- well, it was published for a year, that then closed. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, that was yeah, that's something in the yeah. health mark. What, 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 <coughs> what happened there then? What, what, why didn't that? I, I think actually, with Coach, there were loads of things that we did really well. Okay. So, I think if I look back at um, at Coach. We've got the editorial stance right, we've got the paper right, we've got the distribution right. We certainly were a really good launch. Uh, Ed did a fantastic job. Ed Needham was the editor. Yeah. I think our difficulty that we faced was there was just not sufficient advertising volume in the marketplace. Okay. And uh, I think we would have got there with Coach, actually, John. I think okay. if we'd stuck at it for a couple of years, we probably would have made the turn. But it was too slow. And I think we, you know, here we, 
we try and follow an agile publishing model, and so we had other things that were working better, and so we moved on. Yeah, and okay. I think that kind of, you know, if you launch quickly, be prepared to say, okay, it's not working, and we could have looked at different uh, pivot points, but actually the payback was too long. Okay. okay, so talking about free magazines, uh, I interviewed Mike Souter a few weeks ago, yep. who I'm sure you'll know well, yep. founder of Shortlist Magazine, and one of the things that he talked about uh, at length was, is, uh, is obviously he's talked about uh, the, the freemium model, uh, upmarket free titles, and he was, um, he, he couldn't understand why more publishers hadn't gone down that route. Are you surprised that there hasn't been any um, titles which have mimicked the, the, the freemium model? I mean, you, you've obviously Shortlist, which has been... Uh, big success in the market, yeah. but you, it's not been a wave of, um, you know, Cosmo kind of is. It's doing dynamic distribution, isn't it? I mean, so Cosmo is actually kind of taking a hybrid model of elements of what okay. Shortness has done, yeah. and giving okay. away a load of copies. So okay. I think people, I think, you know, Mike's maybe being a little bit naughty there, isn't he? Because he's had two entrants in against Shortness in the form of the enemy and coach. So yeah. okay. I'm not quite sure why he thinks that no one's been launching weekly magazines. I think... The, the, the thing I'd certainly say about uh, the free model is it's very difficult to do free monthly. Yeah. Yeah, because you just don't have the repetition. You don't. Ha you can't get onto the budgets because there aren't any budgets for that. Yeah. So if you if you're if you're trying to attract a significant amount of advertising revenue, you either have to have a very you have to you have to have a very clear positioning. So for shortlist, they're about entertainment. Right? Yeah. If you're about the if you're about um, the enemy, it's about music. If you're uh, time out, it's clear it's about going out. And for us on Coach, it was about looking after yourself. Yeah, yeah? sure. Okay. So they're quite clear in terms of their positionings, in terms of how they exist as ad magnets. Yeah, okay. Finding those in different spaces is quite hard. It's why no one's done a free car magazine. Right? Yeah, okay. You know, because there probably isn't a large amount of advertising pool to support that. And it's presumably it's harder to um, switch from a paid-for to a free than to you know, launch an out-and-out free magazine, then, isn't it? Yeah, I just I, I just think you know, it's hard enough to be a publisher these days without having one source of income. Okay. You know, and you, if you look at Shortlist, for example, you look at what they're doing with Starlist, they've turned Starlist into an events business. Mm. You know, they're going to get somewhere like 25,000 people through the door at Olympia this weekend. Oh, you really? That, yeah. It's astonishing, isn't it, really, to think yeah. that you're able to command that, that many people to come to a product. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, let's, um, right, okay, the, the, let's talk about the week then. Uh, fantastic success. Uh, I read a, a press release on the Dennis website. Um, which said that it's consolidated its position as the highest subscription news weekly title with over 148,000 single copy subscriptions. Overall circulation, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, Karen, I think it's about 200 and just over 200,000 in the UK. Yes, yes, right. Okay, so you could argue one argument would be that the week has turned journalism on its head. Um, a lot of readers don't necessarily want uh, essays, breaking news, artful photo spreads. Many want magazine journalism, which is functional and stripped down. Do you think, uh, not to over-egg it, but um, do you think the, the Week has been a revolutionary magazine? And, I mean, I guess I, I, get, I get a lot of emails in the morning um, from various journalists, um, sort of a roundup, and a lot of them have this curated uh, overview, taking, um, you know, uh, content from different publishers. So you could argue that the mimic was, you know, the, these basically mimicking the, the model of the Week. Yeah, I think, you know, the Week ultimately is about briefing people on a wide range of subjects. So I think I, I, I'm going to go back, first of all, to whether the Week's been a revolutionary uh, <laughs> product. If it has been a revolution, it's been a very, very long and quite quiet one because it's taken a long time to get to that point. I would meet people who are senior in the industry and be like, oh, how long have you been around? 10 years? And you'd say, no, 20. <laughs> so it's taken a long time for us to get noticed. Um, I think what has been revolutionary about the Week is the business model. I yeah. think the business model, it's, it was... 
uh, something that said, look, you know, we're not going to win on the newsstand. We're not going to find an ability to uh, to, to sit, stand alongside private eyes, a sort of satirical title that sells lots of copies at two points. We couldn't do that. We weren't going to be able to sell it next to the newspapers. So we had to form direct relationships with the readers. Mm-hmm. And so we've built a business that works around that level, which understands the brand, articulates it, finds people, uh, forms a relationship with them, continues to get money out of them, and grows circulation. And uh, you know, I was chatting to someone in the uh, ad industry yesterday. We I'll give you an example of the sort of marketing we do. Mm-hmm. So we looked at uh, the week, and we realised that people who um, uh, bought the week tended to kind of live within the same areas. That's not so odd, right? Yeah. So we would then buy the names and addresses of people who live near our subscribers, and we'd write to them with a letter saying, "Someone in your street knows something you don't." Yeah. Yeah. And okay. you know, or we would send copies of the week to other people. And what what we were doing there was trying to create this sort of universe of like-minded people, yeah. right? And actually, the week's a very broad church because you can read it as a sophisticated news consumer and read it as part of a, a number of different sources, whether they're newspapers, online, or digital. You can read it as someone who uses it as a sole source of news. Yeah. So, okay. you know, in terms of its, re- its, its appeal, maybe revolutionary because people can read into it different types of uh, news mm. usage. Okay, so who is a typical reader then? Does that span all generations? And I, I guess it's um, it's for people. I mean, it's a fantastic magazine, but for someone like me who sort of reads a lot of newspapers day in, day out, I guess I'm not the, the ideal of tailored, ideal reader for it. I wouldn't uh, it depends on what you want to get out of from an opinion point of view. So if you're reading three or four newspapers a day, you know, that's quite hard for you to do that. But remember, this magazine came about from a newspaper editor who said, look, I can't keep on top of everything. True. Yeah. And, and the idea that you that you can read everything and that what you read is really good is tough. And mm. so you know, you're, you're probably an omnivore, you know, you probably go yeah. through vast amounts of media. And for many people, they want to try and see uh, the different sides of um, the argument and to understand different pieces of opinion. And that's where the weak steps in. Okay. You know, and providing multi-source uh, argument and opinion that helps you to understand an issue is very valuable. Yeah. yeah, okay, sure, okay. Particularly now, when you talk about fake news and uh, people's entranced positions, the idea of being balanced and open-minded, it's quite hard to find that news. Okay, so, and you, um, in terms of the, the web offering, that's taken a backseat. The focus has always been on the, the printed magazine then. Uh, I think I read somewhere that uh, yeah, the we, website was... We launched a website uh, six years ago. Yeah. And... Um, uh, I didn't do a website for for many years because I didn't think there was any money in it. Yeah. And so it wasn't a sort of a great big publishing decision or some piece of intuition. I just thought there was more money in continuing to build our paper product. Yeah. You know, and to try and become more dominant in circulation and advertising. Uh, and then we now begin to develop content. And now what it's actually doing is that the beneficial knock-on effect is the content sampling of the week within digital is driving subscriptions. Oh, really? Yep. So all, and all, all the, the content on the website, that's totally different to the... It is, yeah. I have a separate editorial team that produced uh, daily content. Right, okay. So it's obviously been a success. It's been a success in the US too. Yeah, Which is the most big success in the US. And, I mean, in terms of... We've always had a number of brand extensions too. I think we're going to talk about the, um, the week junior shortly. Yep. I mean... Can you talk a bit about the brand extensions and which are being particularly successful? Then? Yeah, we do an independent schools guide. Um, yeah. That makes uh, an enormous amount of money, actually. Um, we assess schooling within the UK. We do the week portfolio, which is the expert's guide to good living online. Mm-hmm. We do a time and jewellery one. We do a fashion supplement. I'm launching a travel supplement next year. Okay. I have a brand extension called the Week Society, which is off- offers and um, 
services that we provide towards our readers. So we have lots of kind of bits and pieces that put them together. I, you know, the, the week does four things. It informs, distills, advises and indulges. Yeah. Right? So everything that we do falls within those sort of categories. So if it's the advises, it's an expert telling you something. If it's indulging, it's maybe where you go on holiday. If it's advising you, it's selecting things in terms of making it good. If it's informing you, then it's about kind of information briefings. And what we've done is we've, we've tried to look at the what we call the, the, this group, we call the affluencers, these ABs, yes. and try and find uh, products that can fit into their lifestyle. Yeah. And the Wheat Junior was the perfect extension of that because we realised there were people raising their children who or their children were asking them questions to people who were interested in news. Maybe we could create a product for their children. Okay, so that was launched earlier this year. Presumably, I mean, there's no advertising market support. Uh, launched, yeah, Richard was launched in November 2015. Uh, 2015, sorry. Wow. So we've, done, we've just done 100 issues of it. Okay, and what's the circulation? What's that at the moment then? So we will, circulation at the moment is about 50,000, and we will have 50,000 subscribers in January. We're on about 45,000 at the moment. And it's it's focused on children between the ages of eight, eight, to, fifth, eight, eight to fourteen. So it's a miracle of a publication because the idea that you can sell a subscription via yeah. the parents for a child who then devours it and reads it, and the metrics are, are far superior to the week. So yeah. when we look at take through rates, first time renewals, pickups, it's uh, it's extraordinary. I've never published a magazine like it, John. I mean, I, I, it 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 does an old fashioned thing. You give it to a reader, mm. and then they just want to buy it. And we give it to kids, and they just sit down and they start reading it, and then they, they get into the print habit, and they get used to the magazine coming for their door on a Friday, and they run to their rooms and start reading it. Presumably, there's no competition out there either. Uh, there's none in the space that we operate in. So we talk about the transitional period. So yeah. there's first news, which is for a younger audience, yeah, but we're sure. at that moment of just coming up into secondary. So you, you get these big jumps forward as a child, and, and that moment of secondary is quite an important one because you get a sense more of the world. Your parents begin to unlock elements mm. of the world and begin to see your place. And so we're there to provide uh, a guide to the complexity of the world, but we're about being positive. So we're not yeah. about kind of sugarcoating the world. We're not. But we are trying to say, look, it's a brilliant place out there. Get engaged with it and understand it and play your part. Who writes for it? What are the age of the journalists who write for the Week Junior there? Are they younger than the Week? <laughs> <laughs> I had visions of a very young sort of school kid. But, I mean, what, um, uh, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're actually mostly children specialists who, who write within there. So they're not, they're not news journalists. So yeah. one, of, one, of the, one of the things that we realised from the Week Junior is that when you're a child, you spend your entire time with people having conversations above your head. So, you know, you're always, people are always looking down on you, explaining things. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do with the Week Junior was do something that was an eyeball-to-eyeball conversation. We wanted something where they felt like they were having a connection point with someone okay. who was telling them how great the world was. Okay. So, I mean, you mentioned a few brand extensions. Could we see another a Pure Play, a, a Week new magazine targeted at a different and older generation or anything like that? Was that is that feasible? Yeah, Felix was always really interested in that. I mean, Felix was really interested in like an over fifties magazine and something that reflected that that side of it. And we had we did have a baby boomer project for quite a long time. But I think the that audience is not as homogenous in the UK as it is in America. Okay. Okay. And I think finding unifying points for that audience is much harder than uh, saying children are interested in the world or adults need to understand news or investors need to protect their money. You know, there was there isn't a single unifying insight that we could certainly discover. With Okay, so you mentioned Felix, uh, who obviously sadly died age 67 um, in 2014. Was he, I mean, he's obviously someone, to my mind, who's synonymous with Dennis. I mean, was he, can you just talk about, was he like a, a mentor to you? Does, does his presence still live on in, in Dennis? What did, and what did you what did you learn from him? Is there any, any yeah, particularly amusing anecdotes? Or? 
There's plenty of anecdotes about Felix. Some of them are amusing, some of them less so amusing. I think what Felix did was Felix was an enormous enabler and challenge. And so what I mean by enablement was he was a quixotic man, you know, he'd give you an opportunity to do things. You know, I was the, I was the associate publisher of the week, and then one day he decided that I should look after the international development maxim. No, really? But, you know, so he was, he was that kind of guy. If he, if, he, if he thought you had some talent, and then he would say, all right, here's a challenge, go away and you do that. I remember he came to me and said, I want you to go down to Australia and launch the week. And I said, well, we don't have an Australian office. He said, well, we will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... So, so if you're if you're that kind of character, which is that you enjoy enablement and challenge, then he was a brilliant boss, you know, mm -hmm. because he was he was also, despite that sort of reputation of being snarly, he was he 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 was very supportive in the sense that he would support people who wish to work hard and try. Yeah, you know, he 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 made us very uh, uh, restless mm -hmm. about how we behave as a corporate organisation, very ambitious, and 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 tried to encourage all of us, I think, to be fearless. So his, his spirit still lives on in Dennis, and is it to an extent? Well, you see it. If you look at the sign there, it says, do it and apologise later. Is the giant, is a, uh, you know, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Six foot letters over there is a direct quote from Felix. Okay. Um, right, okay, just a couple of softball, easy questions before I leave you. Um, so what's what's for you next, and you've been at the week for um, over 20 years. Are you restless at all or not, or...? Yeah, I, restless I am because I'm restless in a corporate sense, but I'm not restless as a person. I think you know I've got uh, you know, as, a, as a publisher, I've got I publish magazines that I adore. So you know I've always been a lover of the category, and I always particularly love the news category, even going back to when I was a teenager. So publishing a news magazine is a dream. I'm, I'm really, really pleased with, with the Week Junior. I think it's mm -hmm. a really interesting piece of development. We're going to develop education guides. We're going to get into okay. to look at other products that spin off from that. We'll start to look at video. We haven't even we've done nothing on digital, that marketplace. And Money Week is another huge uh, opportunity for us. Yeah. To bring that magazine into the mainstream, start looking at the event space. So I've certainly got enough to keep me busy for the next couple of years. And last question. So obviously, uh, publisher uh, man and boy, you, you don't fancy uh, you know, jumping ship, doing other media. No interested in being involved in radio or TV or anything like that. I don't think it's so much about whether I'm interested in it. There's opportunities haven't arisen, and okay. uh, but I think I can, I'm very happy with this. I like I like magazines. I just I like magazines. I like that. That moment of every week having to produce something and creating that content, that relationship with people, it's very creative. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a product person, you know, and so these really sit, this really suits my personality, tinkering away with uh, how they work. Right. Thank you very much, Karen. That is fantastic. And we will see you next week. Thank you.